blessings, and dare I say challenges, of my preferred method of teaching is that you cannot avoid difficult or sensitive topics. Today is a day of such difficulty. I would humbly ask that you stay with me to the end. While I'm looking at today's text with renewed vigor, I also fear that today's topic may be too late. However, at this moment, I will choose to trust God's timing over my own. Here in light of today's text, we ask, should we obey the government and pay taxes, especially if we do not recognize its legitimacy, disdain its policies and are subject to its oppression? Do we feed the monster that is eating us? Is Christianity so heavenly minded that it is of no earthly good? Are Christians a voting block to be calculated by pollsters? How does Christianity interact with the world around it? Within the context of the dispute of today's text, with those who will be the authors of his death, Jesus provides the answer. Let's look at the setting together in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. The broader context is Mark 11, verses 20 through Mark chapter 13, verses 37. It's one long day, and there are five confrontations all together. The question of Jesus' authority by the Sanhedrin, we looked at this text last week. You can always go back and watch that online. The question of paying taxes by the Pharisees and the Herodians, today's encounter. The question of the resurrection by the Sadducees in 12 verses 18 through 27. The question of the greatest command by the scribes and the question of whose son is the Christ by Jesus himself. Two groups of people approach Jesus together, the Pharisees and the Herodians. They were looking for a way to get Jesus gone by turning the masses from excitement to anger. One commentary puts the situation this bluntly. The Pharisees were the conservatives, the right-wingers of the day. The Herodians were the liberals, the left-wingers, advocates of big government. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he was messing with their religious agenda. The Herodians opposed Jesus because he was threatening their political advantage. Amazingly, Jesus brought them together. They both wanted to destroy him. They came with a premeditated verbal ambush in the form of a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or should we not pay? The question they asked is not sincere. Rather like Admiral Akbar in Return of the Jedi, it's a trap. They were trying to either expose Jesus as a fraud who had no plans to deliver the Jews from their oppressors or as a revolutionary who was opposed to the tax, thus liable to the full weight of Roman punishment. If Jesus says, pay your taxes, then he'll be unpopular with the people for they resented this once a year poll tax. See, only adult males paid this tax. It's where we get our word census from. It was a way for 
Rome to gauge the population of the people they oversaw. Meaning the Jewish people were paying for the very people that were now occupying Jerusalem. It was hateful. They could not stand this tax. Every coin was a sign of their subjugation to the Roman Empire. Every coin claimed that Caesar was Lord and God. The very taxes caused a rebellion in both 6 AD and 66 AD. They hated the Romans. They thought it was idolatry to pay the tax and submit themselves to Rome and to do anything that would help further the Roman cause. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, don't pay your taxes, he'll be in trouble with Rome. They'll squash him as a revolutionary tried for sedition and insurrection. Both parties were trying to make Jesus choose the Romans or the people. It's a heads, I win, tails, you lose question. Silence was not an option. For Jesus. His enemies have trapped him on the horns of a dilemma, or so they thought. Jesus asked for a denarius, the required task, t- tax, and a day's wage for a typical laborer in Israel. Ironically, Jesus doesn't have one, but they do. He asked, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. See, we actually know what this coin looked like. People have found them. The denarius was a silver coin with the head of Tiberius Caesar on it. He was the Roman emperor from AD 14 to AD 37, which fits the chronology of the accounts of Jesus' life in the Gospels. The coin had a picture of the emperor on one side with the words, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. The flip side had the inscription, Pontifex Maximus, or high priest. You can understand why the Jews hated this tax. Not only did it go to Rome, but the coin itself contained blasphemy. It hailed Caesar as divine, Caesar as God. Jesus then said some of the most significant words in history. And their impact on Western civilization is mammoth. Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God's, the things that are God's. They never saw it coming. By his reply, Jesus provides the foundational statement for the Christian way of looking at church and state, of God and government. And I believe there are six implications for how Christians should live in response to Jesus' statement here. I want to address three today. The last three will be found on our social platforms later this week. First, if you're taking notes and doing an outline, here's that first point. Christians are good citizens, even if they think the government is bad. Christians are to be good citizens, even if they think the government is bad. Jesus doesn't give a new slogan here. He inserts a theology of government for Christians that he was beginning. Jesus just okayed the use of an idolatrous coin. What he is saying is that the pagan government does not have to be allied to the one true God to be a legitimate 
government. Rome was bad. Make no bones about it. They punished the Jews mercilessly when they had to. They swindled when they could. But Christians should be law-abiding and tax-paying, meaning how they deal with the government and its laws is an honest way and with integrity. We may or may not agree with the taxes, but we should pay them. With, we should be people who are honest and full of integrity, good citizens. There are duties to the government that do not infringe on our duty to God. In light of this, we must work to improve life in our neighborhoods. We can be faithfully present where God has placed us and contribute to the good that is done. Generations does this often and frequently. We believe that we are to be good citizens in our community. So what you do on your job on Wednesday matters. How you live in your neighborhood matters. Whether you shovel your sidewalk and go in or maybe you offer to, to shovel someone else's sidewalk. How you look after your neighbor's packages when they get dropped off on their porch. The type of content you post online matters. What is lived in all spaces are to be for the benefit, for the good of others. If we can be faithfully present wherever God has placed us, then no earthly kingdom is to be identified uniquely with God's people. No earthly kingdom is to be identified uniquely with God's people. So second point, Christians are international. By not requiring his followers to only be good or pay taxes to governments who are affiliated with the one true God, as in the Old Testament, Jesus unhitches his followers from any particular nation. If Christians can support Rome, what government could they not support? This government killed Christ and the apostles. Jesus saying, pay for it. Not because this government, this Roman government is right, but because government reflects the character of God. Christians, by God's grace, are like cockroaches. We can survive everything by the grace of God. We are not dependent on just government for the gospel to go from person to person. In the lives of people in neighborhoods to be changed. From the days of Moses, God's people had been called into a national covenant with God, a national relationship, formal relationship with God. And this was for a time until the coming of Christ. You may find this surprising, but the church has never just been a Western thing or an American thing. This is why Jesus turns his followers to all nations, to all people groups. In Matthew's account of Jesus' life near the end in 20, chapter 28, and in Acts at Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit falls on the, the, the apostles. And then as they speak the gospel, the good news, all the different nations are present in the city and hear about Jesus' love and sacrifice for them. Further, Jesus challenges the notion that a group of people are better because of ethnic purity. 
I've said this before. As much as we have in common with other people in our community who are non-Christian, we have more in common with our Christian brothers and sisters in Jamaica, in Africa, in Europe, in China, in Iraq, because of Jesus. Christians must resist the temptation to make other people like them in terms of preferences and culture. Instead, Christians can contend for Christians to be people of integrity, honesty, be filled with kindness, filled with joy, and be self-controlled. In essence, be Christ-like. Third point, with a couple of sub-points, Christians are finally accountable to God. Jesus says, give to God what is God's. To put it bluntly, human government is always run by humans. Shocker, I know, right? There is always inherent just humanness and civil authority. A tendency to reach beyond its appointed function. A tendency which leads to self Transcendence rather than God transcendence. The temptation to self-glorification, which always accompanies power. And it was particularly clear in the extravagance of the imperial cult with its deification of the state and its civil head, Caesar. Jesus emphatically rejected this insolent confusion between man and God. Divine honors belong to God alone. Jesus was distinguishing all of this because Caesar claimed to be God. The government is not God. If we are not careful, we start to believe that Caesar really may be God, that the state may really have all of the answers, that government will be able to give us everything we need. Ultimately, government, we can think, will be our savior. But Jesus not only tells us to respect the government, but he also tells us quite clearly that the state is not ultimate. We, as a church, must resist the temptation to identify the gospel with any particular nation or any particular party. We look forward to the day when we are done with all of that, And God rules us immediately on the new earth. And fallible earthly authority is no more. That is the hope we have. That God will one day rule us immediately. And right now while we surrender to the gift of the Holy Spirit, that to live every life independent on him, we can trust his guidance wherever, whenever we find ourselves. Therefore, our duty to earthly authority is limited. We see this when authorities clash in our world. We must leave room for civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is approved when the government commands something that is morally wrong. We should not be quick to civil disobedience, though. Rather, we must be slow to do so, recognizing that government is appointed by God, and we should recognize that the government, just as The family and the church is an extension of God's character in the world. Our duty to God is comprehensive. There's one of your sub points. 
Because men bear the image of God and women bear the image of God, we owe our total allegiance to him. Legal is not the same thing as moral. Illegal is not necessarily the same thing as immoral. When Jesus points out Caesar, he's implying God's ownership of all of us because we bear God's image. We are his. Give the coin back to Caesar, but give yourself to God. This is an indictment against both the Pharisees and the Herodians. They were the very people who thought themselves righteous, and they were unrighteous. Adopting something of a manifesto, I think we can say at least the following out of today's text. As a devoted follower of King Jesus, my Lord, my Savior, and my sovereign God, I pledge the following to the governing authorities, which are ordained by God. I will be a good citizen, living in subjection to governmental authority, even a pagan one. I will responsibly engage the political process. If allowed, I will vote, seeking to bring my Christian convictions into the public arena. Now, after each of these points, I do have some verses. I will push out this manifesto later in the week so that you can see the verses that are cited with these points. So I'm not just pulling these out of thin air. Next, I will live internationally like Joseph in Egypt, Daniel in Babylon, and Jesus himself on earth. My ultimate allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom. I will obey the state, but worship only God. I will thank God for all the good he does through the government, praying always for all who are in authority. I will acknowledge that all governmental authority is established by and comes from God. I will acknowledge that all government serves in some measure the purpose of promoting good and punishing evil. Bad government is almost always better than no government. I will pay all taxes levied upon me by my government, recognizing its right to do so. I will engage in civil disobedience only when my government prohibits me from doing what the Bible commands or when it commands me to do what the Bible prohibits. This last point, while true, needs some further clarification. This is a topic that's debated heavily in today's world. So here's that clarification. One, the law being resisted must be unjust and immoral, clearly contrary to the will of God and not just inconvenient or burdensome. Two, legal means of changing the unjust situation must have been exhausted. Civil disobedience is a method not of first resort, but of last resort. The act of disobedience must be public rather than secretive or hidden. There should be some hope of success as my intent is to produce changes in laws and institutions. Five, if you're keeping track on this clarification, as I consider civil disobedience, I must be willing to accept the penalty for breaking the law. In light of that manifesto, 
And today's teaching text, there is a way forward in our world during this cultural moment. Though Jesus sowed the seeds of demise for Israel's nationalism and Roman paganism, he focused his efforts on a much more important revolution. He conquered sin and death on the cross and in the resurrection. He showed us what it's like to be truly human in this world. We should return coins to Caesar, but we must give our hearts to God. For when we give our hearts to God, we can rightly see the world and work for transformation through people, not in spite of people. When we give what's God to God, we begin to realize that everything is his. We are called to serve, to display righteousness and personal integrity in the midst of a world that is slow to acknowledge the presence of sin and moral accountability. One should be able to point to the church and say, here is a place where healthy relationships and genuine, even multi-ethnic community can be found. May that be said of Generations Church. In the world, we should support causes that reflect the sense of moral justice that is not wedded to any particular ideology. In fact, one can argue that in order to do the work of testifying to God's grace, every institution should be examined by God's high standards. The question that I asked at the beginning, one of the several, is the church so heavenly minded that it is of no earthly good? My hope for generations is that we are so heavenly minded that we cannot help but be earthly good. The application of that credo, of that manifesto, can take so many forms that it's limited only by our imagination and energy. May we be a people who live out our faith every day. And at the end of the day, when people look to Generations Church, they say, there is everyday people who are committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus, for generations to come. Give to Caesar what's to Caesar. Give to God what's God's. May that be your heart and your life.